0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to FedLife, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy and investing and retirement planning brought to you by WEPA.
0: Here's your host,
1: Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. If the 2023 stock market showed anything, it's that you can't predict the stock market. Instead, you need a strategy you can stick with. Nearly every federal employee has a Thrift Savings Plan account. For how to think about it, I spoke with Art Stein of Arthur Stein Financial.
2: Last year was a very good year, and that was a welcome relief because 2022 was a historically bad year. I mean, not only were stocks down, but bonds were down, you know, in double-digit declines. And it was just, you know, it was very unusual. It was two years in a row of bond declines, which almost never happens. It was the first time the TSP F fund and the stock funds had gone down in the same calendar year. And, you know, just looking at financial markets in general is the first time that anybody can remember, maybe since the Great Depression or something like that. So it was pretty discouraging for investors. Then last year, uh, there were a lot of ups and downs, but especially the last two uh, last two months of the year. Uh, everything really jumped and we ended up the C fund was up 26% the S fund 25% the I fund 18% and finally the bond funds went up 5.6% which is a good return for bond funds and outperformed the G fund uh for the first time in a long time so we finally saw what you know investors are looking for and it really benefited people who obviously stayed invested. So if if you were a TSP participant and became discouraged and either pulled out of the stock and the funds and the F fund or whose uh, biweekly investments were not going into those funds, you really lost out. And actually since the last two months of the year contained All the bond fund gains, all the F fund gains, and a very large proportion of the stock fund gains, you had to be in there for those two months, especially. It seems like
1: people make the mistake of, you know, if they want to swing around their investments of taking what's going on in the news and somehow overlaying that with what they think the market will do. And there's been lots of bad news in the last quarter of 2023, the war in the Middle East. The Ukraine situation droning on, the political paralysis in the United States, but the market doesn't necessarily follow those things, which means you're putting yourself in potential danger if you try to beat the market based on the news.
2: Absolutely. And one way to put it, Tom, is the economy is not the stock market and the stock market is not the economy. And one of the reasons that's true is that the stock market is what's called a leading indicator it tends to go down before the economy starts to decline. And it tends to go up before the economy starts to recover. And so it makes it very hard to time the market based upon what's going on now. And it's one of the reasons why trying to time the market, trying to get in and out of the stock or bond funds based upon what you think is going to happen has really been a losing proposition. Right. Uh, The the better strategy is just to decide what allocation you want between stock funds and bond funds, and then invest accordingly and stick to that allocation.
1: Yeah, people that have great stories about how they beat the market or time this or that stock sometimes remind me of people who went to Las Vegas and came back, and they never tell you about the losses. They only tell you about how they could do no wrong at the crap tables or something, and you would think that you actually could have a chance of winning at the long term in Las Vegas, which nobody does.
2: Yeah. And there's actually an academic term for this. It's called recency bias, that we tend to think that whatever has happened recently is going to happen in the future, because it's you know what we remember most closely.
1: We're speaking with Art Stein, certified financial planner with Arthur Stein Financial in Bethesda, Maryland. And so looking ahead to 2024, people are you know, we're here already, and the same wars are going on, the same political paralysis is in the country. And so, you know, the underlying situation hasn't changed because the calendar turned over. So what are you advising people with respect to thinking about strategy
2: for the coming year? Okay, well, first of all, we have to remember that there is a lot of good news about the economy. Employment's remained very strong, and interest rates have come down a little bit, Inflation has certainly come down and, uh, you know, economic growth has continued. So the our economy continues to do well. You know, the general forecast for last year was that there would clearly be a recession. I mean, that was just, you know, most people who forecasted, that's what they were forecasting. And now I'm seeing the same forecast. So the people keep forecasting a recession and eventually they're going to be correct. Uh, maybe not this year, maybe it'd be 10 years from now, but, and then they will be crowned the king of four, a uh, queen, king or queen of forecasting because they have got it right. I think a key thing for people to do in the early part of the year, it's a great time to review your financial situation and see where you are and whether you are uh, on the right path. So, of course, you want to look at your TSP allocation uh, with all the ups and downs. I mean, is the allocation what you want? And if not, you can rebalance. Employees, uh, of course, want to look at the uh, allocation of their biweekly investments, which, you know, can be very different than their current allocation. And one thing we often recommend is that your biweekly investments can be much more aggressive than your current allocation because that you just have smaller amounts going in every two weeks. And if the markets go down, uh, that's good for you at that point because you are buying low. Then another question you need to ask yourself is, do you want to be in the Roth TSP or do you want your money in a Roth IRA? You know, the whole Roth question. So uh, current participants, employees, have the choice of their contributions going either into the regular TSP or a Roth TSP, or the Roth TSP. And the major difference is that the money you put in the regular TSP, whatever you put in reduces your taxable income by the same amount for that year. So if you put in 10,000 into the TSP, you're going to reduce your taxable income $10,000. Now, of course, when you take that money out, it's fully taxable. With a Roth, the money that you put in does not reduce your taxable income. But when you take it out, there's no tax on the withdrawals. So you're foregoing a um, tax deduction on a smaller amount for a tax free withdrawal and hopefully a much larger amount in the future. One downside of that is that for employees, the reduction in, because there's no tax break on contributions, your taxable income is going to be higher and you want to make sure that you can afford that. Now you can split up, you know, so that some of your uh, contribution goes to the Roth and some to the regular, but people need to look at that. And there are a lot of advantages to a Roth account. For retirees, they can decide to do what's called a Roth conversion, so they can take money out of an IRA and put it in a Roth IRA, and, but then it's uh, the amount they transfer is fully taxable at the time. That's a much more difficult decision and re, uh, requires a lot of planning. And it's very uh, – whether it's a good idea or not depends upon one's personal situation.
1: Right. So in deciding, though, Roth or regular TSP 401k style, you have to understand or you have to kind of have an anticipation of what your tax rate will be when you withdraw, presuming Absolutely. that it's going to be lower. And if you get some great private sector job where your salary triples when you when you turn, you know, and you're still working at the age of the minimum withdrawal, then you might have a higher tax than you would have if you'd done the Roth
2: years earlier. Absolutely. It, see the, um, especially with the Roth conversion, you have to look at one: how long do you think the money is going to be invested in the Roth? And you know, if you're 85 years old, a Roth conversion makes less sense than if you're a 35-year-old employee. And it also makes a difference how aggressively you're investing. You know, if all the money's going in the G fund, it really doesn't make much of a difference. But if you're an aggressive investor, you're putting a lot of money into stocks, into the stock funds, CS&I, and you expect those to grow very rapidly, then it makes more sense. Now, those are not the other variables. Another way to look at that is that if you think that your tax rate's going to be lower when you withdraw the money, then just in terms of doing the calculations, a Roth conversion doesn't make as much sense. But we have to look at the fact that, you know, taxes may be higher in the future because we're running huge deficits.
1: All right. So have a plan. Have a strategy. Don't time the market and some eternal truths you might say
2: yeah Uh, another thing to look at is life insurance and I find many people are underinsured especially if you are for instance married you have kids and only one spouse works you need a lot of life insurance on that spouse like 10 times salary is not too much and for a healthy person they need to compare what it costs for Fegley. Uh, the federal government life insurance uh, group policy, with what they can get in the private sector. And healthy feds are going to probably find that the private sector policies are cheaper and no reason not to get them. Uh, I would say that everyone should calculate their net worth every year. It's value of everything you own minus your debts. And that should be going up every year. If it's not, it's a real warning signal. Now, if you're retired and you're older, you you don't expect to see that increase in net worth, perhaps, but it's still nice if it happens. So life insurance, calculate net worth. Again, an area where I see a lot of mistakes being made is in homeowners and auto insurance because many people do not have enough liability insurance. And this is if you have an accident, you're at fault, you get sued, or if someone's at your house and they fall or slip and they're seriously injured and they sue you, how much is your insurance actually gonna cover? And what you're gonna find is that for most people, it's gonna be somewhere around 100 to maybe $500,000 and so think of it, you know, like you have someone over to your house, your kids have friends over, some kid falls down the stairs, can't walk for the rest of her life. Uh, you could easily get sued and lose a million or $2 million lawsuit. And your uh, homeowner's insurance going to say, great, we'll cover that up to $250,000. And the rest of it, that's on you. Well, you don't want to be in that situation. You want to look at what's called umbrella liability insurance, which is sold in million-dollar increments to cover that excess liability in home and auto. And one of the great things about umbrella liability insurance is it's very cheap. I'd say most people can get a million dollars covering auto and home, of umbrella coverage for about six eight hundred dollars a year. Well, why not have the extra coverage for that? Okay. And then finally, make sure you have emergency funds sufficient to cover you for two three four five six months of expenses. Especially for feds who are working, but even for retirees, you know, if the government closes down, we could be in a situation again where salaries are not being paid and it even it would be pretty extreme but you know maybe uh, annuities are not being paid either and uh, people should be prepared for that so beginning of the year it's a great time to review your situation make some decisions and do that every year
1: certified financial planner art stein of arthur stein financial we'll take a short break and when we return an update on how opm is processing retirement claims you're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. The Office of Personnel Management had a relatively successful year chipping away at a large retirement inventory. But now, OPM must brace for a surge in federal retirement claims. At the same time, it's working on a big modernizing project. I discussed this with a Federal News Network reporter, Drew Friedman. Drew, at the beginning of the year, that's when they can expect generally a surge in retirement claims. Is that the way it works?
0: That is typically what we will see, Tom. So, for example, in 2023, uh, even though you had about 89,000 federal employees filed for retirement over the course of the entire year. About 12,400 of those claims were processed just in January by itself. Compare that to December, the month before, not even half that amount, just about 5,500 retirement claims were filed. A lot of federal employees like to retire at the very end of the calendar year, December 31st, or the first day of the new year, just because that kind of helps with financial benefits, or maybe you're trying to get a better cost of living adjustment. So there's a couple of different reasons feds might cho- choose to do that. But the numbers show that there definitely is a pretty significant uptake at the beginning of each calendar year for that.
1: And for OPM to handle that surge, this is all done by hand, by paperwork. So is the way that they handle it is just brute force manpower.
0: That's pretty much their plan each year. So OPN likes to staff up during January, February, March. And with more people, of course, that means the processing can go a little bit faster in advance. So a couple months ahead, they also try to, at least during 2023, they try to be a little bit more proactive by offering information on how to reduce errors in applications. So getting ahead of that can help with the processing times. If there's nothing wrong with the application when it's submitted, then that should help speed things up a little bit and of course bringing more people on. OPM's Deputy Director Rob Shriver says that collaboration has other benefits as well.
1: It's really a great exchange to have people who are doing the work at the agency side see the way that it happens at OPM. So they can not only help us during the surge period, but then take that knowledge back to their agencies. And we also learn from the agencies, uh, when we're working side by side with them, uh, what their pain points are. And Drew, you've reported that at the end of last year, the retirement claim, they call it inventory. I guess we'll go with inventory, but it's ones that are people are waiting to get their final annuity. Let's put it that way. Just give us a rundown on the numbers.
0: The numbers are actually really looking pretty good right now, Tom. Currently, there are about 14,300 cases sitting in the inventory uh or backlog. However, what which way you want to cut it, uh it's actually the smallest retirement claims backlog backlog that OPM has had since December 2017 when there was about that same number of cases. So if you look from the beginning of 2023, so in January up until December, just last month, they reduced the case inventory overall by 34%. So that means the cases in the inventory are now one third less than they were before. Now we're seeing about 15,000 or so cases, 36,000 pending claims a couple of years ago, so they've had some major progress there. However, on the other side, the case inventory is still pretty significantly above what they call their steady state goal. So OPM has this goal of having 13,000 pending retirement claims at any given time. Right now, they're about 12 Hundred cases above that. So they're looking to improve that a little bit further, I believe. But they've also been trending in the right direction in terms of how long it takes to process a claim. It's a little bit over uh, 60 days right now on average. And there's also been a decreasing number of cases going into their system that come in with errors. So that's uh, an important step as well.
1: They're also, at the same time, trying to improve retirement services. I guess that's what you might call OPM's customer experience drive. And so that's separate from what they need to do to process the claims. What are they doing on that improvement side for retirement services?
0: Right, Tom, as you mentioned, the process as it stands right now is pretty much entirely paper-based, and that can slow things down pretty significantly. So what they're trying to do is undergo this really big modernization project. It's not something necessarily new that OPM is trying, but they're trying it in a slightly different way this time. They're looking, for example, to take a couple smaller steps. They launched a retirement online application pilot. They launched a chatbot pilot. So that answers a couple basic questions about retirement. Those are a couple... Small steps they took during 2023 to try to chip away at this large modernization project. OPM's deputy director, Rob Shriver, says that the agency is trying to essentially learn from the past.
1: There have been efforts in the past to do it as one big modernization that haven't been as successful. And so we're just kind of chipping away at that, taking um, kind of a modular approach to making sure that, you know, we're modernizing the entire system. But in the meantime, we have people that need to be served and they need to be served um, quickly and effectively. The essential problem here, Drew, right, is that to figure out someone's annuity, you have to know exactly where they worked, under what particular rules or regulations they worked, and for exactly how much time they worked and what their particular salary was and what that therefore contributed to that final annuity over the course of a long career. So if someone joined agriculture department at 22 and left at 62, that's pretty easy but people that worked at 10 different agencies, maybe under different authorities, maybe outside of the GS for a while, inside the GS for a while, and so on, which is not all that untypical. It becomes this exercise in logic and calculation. Am am I describing it right?
0: I think you are right in the sense that there are a lot of different pitfalls or different points along the, the path that applicants can make mistakes. OPM maybe won't catch a mistake early. Maybe the employing agency won't see something, and so it can really extend the processing time. I've heard from a lot of federal employees and retirees who, you know, even though the wait time is on average, as OPM says, about 60 or so days to process the application, a lot of feds are waiting much longer than that. You know, sometimes it can be six months. I've heard cases where it takes up to a year or two years to process that retirement application. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the more Immediate frustration from federal employees and retirees. So at the same time that OPM is trying to take on this big modernization project, they're also trying to balance, okay, who are the federal retirees and employees who need help right now? And how can we help them?
1: Right. And so what their answer, one of the answers has been around for many years, they give you what they think is close to your actual annuity minus a certain amount for safety. And then when they actually figure it out, you get that back pay of your annuity. And then from then on, you get your proper annuity.
0: That is one way that they're trying to address it. They also just last year released what they call a retirement quick guide that tries to explain the process a little bit more transparently to anyone who's retiring because they get a lot of questions about, you know, where is my application in the process or why isn't it processed yet? So they're trying to get out ahead of it a little bit, in a sense, and try to help federal employees where they can. Uh, But one other thing, you know, I also recently reported on improper payments through retirement services. That's an interesting angle of this as well. There have been a lot, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in overpayments to federal annuitants that they try to recover over time, but there's a lot of error throughout the entire process. It's not just on the application end as well.
1: Right. And so the other question now, there could be a government shutdown, and we don't know how long it would be if there was. And during that time, what happens? Do they still process claims?
0: It's a little bit complicated. OPM, on OPM side of things, they continue to work during a shutdown. Their retirement services staff stays continuing working as normal, but that doesn't necessarily mean that applications will get processed at the same speed because it'll depend on the employing agency as well. So depending on what your own agency is doing and if their retirement services staff or their HR staff are not working or get furloughed, then you might start to see some delays. Maybe your application is still with your agency and not with OPM yet. That means that you might not see your application processed right away. So that's where you might see, see some the backlog grow if we were to see a shutdown.
1: Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And that's it for today's FedLife. We'll be back next week with more on your professional and financial concerns. Until then, I'm Tom Teman. Thanks for
0: listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio,
1: part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search Fed Life.